I pay tribute to elders past and present and acknowledge that they have cared for this country over countless generations. I recognise the continuing contribution that the Wurundjeri people make to the life of this region and pray that we can work together to leave a legacy of reconciliation, justice and hope for all future Australians. So just on two years ago, I completed a master's degree in theology and justice. It was a great experience through a small uh, Christian college based in the US and it's something that has continued to mess with me and change me and affect my thinking on these issues in the time since then. But I was having a conversation with a friend uh, when I was wrapping it all up and they asked me a really good question. What's the thing that you learnt most, that most caught your attention from the past three or four years of study that you've done on this? And it didn't take me long to come up with an answer. My answer was simply racism. It's so much bigger, it's so much a part of so much of the injustice that we see in the world today and something that just needs so much more attention than we've given it in the past. So today I want to spend some time doing some of that work. Perhaps not in the way that uh, we often think about it, but to look at it as a theological and historical issue and something that we have some unique uh, contributions to make too. Uh, I venture onto this ground always with a sense of humility, a sense of my own complicity and benefit from racism and uh, white supremacy, uh, white privilege, and also with the recognition that there are so many sensitivities around this issue. That's because it's important, and because it's important, we can't afford not to talk about it. So I want to spend some time looking at what Willie James Jennings re describes as a revolt against creation, racism, something that we need to continue to wrestle with, uh, that has been part of the headlines but is also part of our own experiences in different ways and our own uh, challenges that we need to uh, wrestle with in what it means to live faithfully in our world. Of course, when we start talking about a topic like this as Christians, one of the obvious questions that will be asked pretty quickly is, what does the Bible have to say about this? The reality is, and we'll talk about this a little bit further, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about racism, but it does give us some very important tools and insights for anti-racism. Of course, one of the natural inclinations we have when we start talking about justice is that we actually start talking about injustice, and we start talking about everything that is wrong. You know, and that's natural. A horrific headline, a political outrage, or some other issue that crops up, whether it's locally or internationally, catches our attention. But that means we sometimes spend our best efforts and our best focus and attention looking at what's wrong in, with these issues, rather than going back to what's right, what the world was intended to be, and what the world is uh, promised to be. The Bible begins in a different place. The Bible begins with the story of a world that was created good and of human beings who were created in the image of God. As Genesis 1 verse 27 puts it, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. This is such a significant thing. And while theologians and philosophers are sometimes divided as to 
what this actually means. What does the image of Godness mean in us as human beings? There are a few people that argue that if you accept this story, if you accept this explanation of how human, human beings and how the world uh, came to be, then it has profound ethical, social and justice uh, consequences. And of course this idea of being created in the image of God becomes a foundational understanding and key to all our ethical responsibility for how we act towards our fellow human beings. What is appreciated and practiced less often is how socially transformative, economically disruptive and politically challenging such an understanding of our human origins and values ought to be. I came across a fascinating article in the Washington Post last year by columnist Michael Gerson who highlighted the tensions in history between how faith has been often used to diminish uh, and, to, and to ennoble, to oppress and to liberate, to hurt and to help, but also how essential and politically inconvenient it is to, to understand this core understanding of human identity. He writes, Christianity inevitably raises this question. What if everyone we favour and everyone we fear and everyone we help and everyone we hurt and everyone we love and everyone we hate were the reflected image of God, unique, valuable and destined for eternity? It's such a big call, a big understanding of what it means to be human. To insist that all people are created in the image of God has dramatic political and practical implications. If we believe this foundational teaching of our faith in any meaningful way, much of what passes for political debate just doesn't make sense to us. It's not something that we can respond to, that we can be part of. Another book that I read recently by an author by the name of Belinda Bauman describes this failure of belief as the most significant barrier to empathy, by which she means true concern, deep-seated concern for others. But it's also the foundation for the perpetuation of injustice and equality in all the forms in the world. She puts it like this and summarises this, the idea that some people matter more than others. That's a pretty significant kind of thing to wrestle with. And of course, some people do matter more than others to us. The people that are in our families, the people that are in our communities, the people we spend time with, they matter more than to us because they are our people. But the bigger story of what it means to be a person who follows God in our world never lets us leave it there. We're always challenged to define our understanding and redefine and expand our understanding of what it means to be human. Of, what, of who the us that we care about, the people that matter to us. Because the people that matter to God are the people that should matter to us. And that's everyone. We don't make those artificial distinctions that so many of our society around us make, that so many of the policies and the politics and the injustice in our world are based upon. We are called, to, if we take this belief seriously, to live differently. So where does that leave us when we're talking about racism? If we accept as a working hypothesis, as Jennings put it, that racism is a revolt against creation, where does that, you know, how does that come into the story? We, I've already mentioned that 
you know, racism doesn't appear much in the Bible. So where does it come from? Now, this is where we have to do a little bit of history. Uh, so let's have a, have a think about that. The reality is that racism is such an entrenched part of our society, of our culture, of our history. And we can assume that that means it's been there forever. We kind of think in those kind of ways, but the reality is that it hasn't. And we might look at this and say, well, you know, Black Lives Matter has been something that's been in the headlines for the past five years, so is that the history of racism? Or if we go back 50 years, we might recognise that, you know, the civil rights movements that many of us have heard about in, uh, in different parts of the world, you know, is that where we really got this idea of racism from? The reality is it's a much longer history than that. But one of the things we have to remember is it's not a 5,000-year history. It's not a 5-year history, it's not a 50-year history, it's not a 5,000-year history, but it's probably about a 500-year history. And that's an awful lot of time when you think about it in these kind of contexts. It's something that becomes so embedded in our culture, in our society, in our, dare I say it, in our theology, uh, that it's something that we really have to pause and ask some hard questions about. So racism as we know it, this is my argument, is about a 500-year history. And, of course, like a lot of things that we try to um, develop into centuries of things, there's, these things develop over time and they morph and they change and they grow and they become different things at different times in that history. But that's kind of the time frame. The reality is that before 500 years ago, racism as we know it was not something that was a common part of our culture. And a fascinating way of getting a glimpse of that is to go on back and read the plays of Shakespeare. Now, that might be something like you can do for some homework, or it might be something that you have at least some passing knowledge with from those bad days of high school English. But one of the fascinating things, and people have been doing a lot of study on this, in particularly in more recent history, is to say, well, was racism a thing? Because those plays, considered to be some of the finest works in English history, what do they tell us about a snapshot of society at that time, you know, in the, in the 16th century? And the reality is that most people uh, have kind of got to the point of recognising that, yes, there are different characters of colour in those plays, but they are just that. As one writer has commented, they help to round out his cast by inclusion of some of the variety of humanity that existed in England of his day. But they do so largely without explicit value judgment, political utility, or the sort of generalising about a people group which we are familiar with today. So yes, there are different characters of colour, but they don't automatically bring with it certain political significance or an assumption about good or bad or what that race, to use that language, might represent. So it's a fascinating insight. You know, we get a snapshot that, yes, racism was starting to develop around this time, but in England, in the early 16th century, it wasn't the dominant thing that had, has become since that time. But the early seeds of it were there. One of the key dates that a lot of people point to uh, in some of these topics is a decree by Pope Nicholas V that was issued on June 18, 1452. And he gave the King of Portugal 
permission to invade, search out, capture, vanquish and subdue almost anyone other than the existing known lands of Christian Europe and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery and to convert them to his and his successors' use and profit. It's just such a profound statement when we say, well, this is a starting point for so much of what has happened in world history since that time. When we look at this discussion and say, well, think about what is actually being said in this moment, this specific day. And of course, this developed as part of the colonialism and the empires that were built by the European nations in the following centuries. You know, we, if we notice that date, 1452, 1492, Columbus set out and discovered the new world. And this has no, become known as the doctrine of discovery, that if you go and find another land, then this is a, something that you can do as a good Christian colonizer. Um, that's a big kind of call. It has led, and we've heard it more recently discussed in the context in Australia of the Mabo decision in 1992, where after all these years, you know, 500 something years later, a court in Australia on the other side of the world said, actually, no, that's not true. And that's how long it took to say it, that there were actually people here that were living on this land and caring for it and were the traditional owners of this place. That's how long it took to make a difference. But also there's reference there to a permission to enslave. And we see the transatlantic slave trade that went on for you know, 250 years uh, from about the early 17th century uh, into the 19th century. And what that meant uh, for um, the history and the, the development economically, socially and justice-wise in our world since that time. It's also significant to note that notice those dates for a number of different reasons. One of them is that in the, some of the discussions that have been going on in our world in the past few months, where I've seen so many Christians that have talked about how you know, racism is based on evolution. Now, that just doesn't make sense. Evolution was published, the theory of evolution was published by Charles Darwin in the mid-19th century. We're talking something about 400 years after the church decided that racism was a good idea. So if anything, evolution and some of those kind of things is a theory that grew out of this aberrant doctrine of Christianity. And of course, one of the other things we've seen recently has been criticism of people that speak up for justices, people that are Marxist or communists or whatever. Again, we go back to Marx and say, well, when did he start talking about the struggle between classes and between different groups of the haves and the have-nots? Again, the mid-19th century. This is something that grew up and recognised something that was already happening. Yes, we may not agree with all the conclusions and all, the, you know, all his arguments, but that wasn't something that established and set up this kind of disparity in our society or even championed it. It was a, an observation of a society that had followed this theology for hundreds of years. And so while Marxism brings their critique to this, it's not something that they invented and it's not their fault, as in their fault, 
that this has been, uh, that these issues are coming to the fore. There's a lot of history to it and history that from our perspective we need to be alert to because it's Christian history. Yeah, we like to talk ourselves, talk about ourselves as heirs of the Reformation. And of course, it was only uh, about 70 years after this decree by the Pope that the Reformation, you know, we often date that to Martin Luther in 1517, that he began sort of questioning some of the things. But so much of this is tied up with the same fallen doctrine of Christian empire that we have never quite got ourselves free from. And I think that's a significant thing to reflect on. So often we, we've talked about the idea that the winners are the people who write the history, but the reality is that the winners are often the people who have written the theology as well. And so when we look at our own history, we recognise that we are heirs of more than 500 years of really bad theology that has led to the racism and the injustice that we see in the world today. And that's something we need to pause and reflect on. But it also is something that gives me hope. It's a cause of shame, but it's also a cause of hope because theology is something we do, something we can contribute to the world. And so when we see the racism around us in the world and the injustice that is caused by it, one of the best works of anti-racism we can do is to do better theology. And so that's why we need to keep doing that work. It's holy work and it's work of justice that is to reflect what God calls us to be, who God created us to be and what God plans for us to be. But there's another aspect of this too. And I think this is an exciting thing. It's our calling to be people, prophetic people as an act of anti-racism. Over the past few years, I've had the opportunity to have a number of conversations, kind of an ongoing conversation with my friend, Dr. Lisa Clark Diller, who's Professor of History at Southern Adventist University. And one of the things that she always tells me that she challenges her students with is the sense that history is not inevitable. She wrote in something for me a little while ago, the job of the Christian historian is to help us be more creative in seeing how many choices there have been in the past and by implication how many there still are today. So when we try to understand the past, we're expanding our imagination. Things did not have to be as they are. Recognising this can cause us to change how we act now and create new possibilities for the future. This is what the biblical prophets did. While they predicted outcomes based on current actions, they were always begging people to behave differently so that they could have a different result. It's part of our human psyche, our way of thinking, to tend to think that the way things are are the way things ought to be, even when they aren't the way things ought to be, that there's some sense of inevitability to this. The inevitability of the status quo is also urged upon us by those who benefit from the way things are. The people that are in power, the people that dominate our societies are the ones that say, yes, it is natural and makes sense that things are the way they are. But in this context, and in the context of the voices for anti-racism and, and anti-injustice in our world today, one of the most prophetic things we can say is simply this. 
It doesn't have to be this way. That we refer back to creation. We look forward to God's promises of how humanity will be and say, it doesn't have to be this way. In his book, The Colour of Compromise, Jamar Tisby records the 400-year history of the Christian church in the United States. It's a fascinating read. And what he does is identify quite a few key moments where the church and society and others made decisions that have led to the way things are today. It's a succession of decisions, and each decision builds on the previous decision. And of course, that gets pretty complicated after a while, and it also gets pretty hard to imagine unpicking it. But the reality is all those things were chosen. And the reality is that means that we can choose differently. We can choose differently today in small ways, and we can work towards bigger and better choices as an ongoing contribution to society and what it can be and to what it means to live as people of faith. And this is a challenge for us because I think from our Adventist perspective, sometimes we have this idea that history is kind of already written, even into the future, and that we can be fooled into accepting the status quo because we say, well, you know, God is in charge of history and so history goes the way that he predicted it will. But the reality is that the best of the, the Bible's prophets we're making calls to say, this is a possibility, choose better. Make a different choice. Choose to live differently. And the results will be different. Your society can be different. Hear those prophetic voices in the world around us today. And I think this is a significant thing. None of us are merely pieces on some kind of cosmic chessboard. We need to recognise that we have freedom of choice. We believe that... Every human being created in the image of God has also been given that freedom to choose. And that means that our individual choices, but also our collective choices, can be different. And where we have influence, um, we can make a difference in the world. Now, that may sound naive or optimistic or hopeful or whatever that might be, but the reality is that the world has changed every way in many ways every day in many ways and we are a part of making those choices we choose how we want to want to live how we relate to others how we relate to each other what we believe about what is right and good and important and the reality is that um, prophetic imagination to you borrow the phrase from Walter Brueggemann is something that we need to what could the world look like if it was different? How can the world be different? How can we make those different and better choices? The Bible gives us another way of looking at the world, and that's the view from the future. A view of a different kind of humanity. That things actually won't always be this way, and that thus our present reality and the present equality and justice and racism that we see around us that will not have the last word and that's a significant thing amongst a number of the significant writers and thinkers in the context of anti-racism in the world today there is a kind of note of criticizing the idea of hope Ibram Kendi in his book uh, how to be anti-racist makes this comment there is nothing I see in our world today 
in our history, giving me hope that one day anti-racist will win the fight. And that may be the case. You know, while Martin Luther King said that the arc of the universe bends towards justice, it doesn't do it inevitably. It does it with work, and it does it with a view of what God intends humanity will be. And so we are given in our faith more resources for this work that we can contribute and share with those who are working for justice in the world today. There's a fascinating uh, picture in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude and no, that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. In Revelation 14 we see this same uh, crowd again standing before on, the, on Mount Zion, standing uh, before the people and they are singing together like a loud peal of thunder. This is a moment of triumph, a moment when humanity is restored to what it should be. And the reality of this hope, this promise, should be destabilising to the reality of racism in our world today. We have an alternative perspective that gives us this different view of what life will be, what life reminds us what life was intended to be, and this different view of what it can be now. Because the reality is that as people called to be people of God here and now, we are called to live in the reality of those promises. We, because of this, must work against the temptation to despair, the temptation to simply accept the status quo. Our hope is a unique attribute to, for living as the people of God, confronting injustice and overcoming evil by doing good in the world around us. Brian Stevenson made this comment, Hopelessness is the enemy of justice. When you are fighting for justice, you are fighting against hopelessness. Injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. So you have to see hopelessness as a kind of toxin that will kill your ability to make a difference. And the truth is you're either hopeful, working towards justice, or you're the problem. And there's nothing in between. You can't be neutral. So the call for us is to live in the light of what we believe about what God intends for what it means to be human, and the light of what God has promised to do for us, for our world, and for all people. Now that's a significant thing, and I think that's what we are called to be as prophetic people in the world today. We have these tools for anti-racism in the core of our faith. While we yet hear only hopeful echoes of this, these songs of praise and victory that will be sung by that multitude of everybody, everybody's invited, everybody's part of it, singing together in harmony, not singing in monotone, but singing in harmony and bringing our different cultures and our different perspectives and our different stories and our different songs to sing together. We join another chorus from the psalmists and even from Revelation as well, where we recognise that the question is not, will racism come to an end? 
And of course, if we recognise that it's will, it's not something we want to sign up to be part of because we recognise that it has an expiry date. And so our question is not if racism ends, it's when. How long is the question for the psalmist? And we are called to sing that song together in our world today. Injustice and racism will be overthrown. Somehow their evils will be undone. And their wounds remarkably will be healed. In the victorious resurrection of Jesus, they are already defeated. Because Jesus introduced a new kind of humanity into the world that is fully inaugurated in these pictures of these multitudes singing together in the book of Revelation. The question is no longer if, but when. And when we ask again how long, we testify to the impermanence of injustice. Racism might have a 500-year history, but it doesn't have an eternal future. It will end, and we are called to be part of it now. I was inspired recently by a, a presentation by my friend, Dr. Kendra Holoviak-Valentine. And she was talking about some of these issues and simply read these verses from Revelation with the using images from some of the Black Lives Matter protests in the past few months in the United States and around the world, showing the multitudes, people of every colour and race and class and language marching together to say enough of racism, that we need to find new and better ways of living together. And that's so we get a, just a glimpse. It's not perfect. There's, lot, there's much to question and wrestle with and criticise. And there are different methods and different ways of talking about it. But we see a glimpse of what God has promised. So to finish our time together and our reflection on some of these topics, and I will give you a recommended reading list to some of these authors that I've been wrestling with and some of those kind of things. There's work to be done here. But I'd like just to take a moment of reflection. I had the privilege a few years ago to spend time in a class with a lady by the name of Alexis Salvatierra. She's a Hispanic Lutheran minister, an older lady who has spent so much of her life working particularly with immigrants and on refugee issues and some of these things uh, in Southern California. And uh, it was a privilege to spend a few days with her just hearing her stories, her insights, her understanding of community organising and protest and lobbying and all of those kind of things. But the thing that stuck with me most was a time of reflection she uh, introduced us to and took us through. And I'd just like us to spend a minute or two doing that together to finish this. She simply asked three questions and I'll ask them and then give you a few seconds to think about them and then move to the next question. And the first question she asked was simply this. When I look at the world, when I look at the world around me, whether it's my local community or the headlines, what are the stories or the events, tragedies or issues that break my heart, that really grab my attention, that if I could do something about it, I would? You know, that get me stirred up, that catch, make me angry. What are, that, what are those issues? Just think of one of those issues in your own mind. And then a second question. What would it look like if that, what breaks your heart, if that issue that you've just reflected on for a moment was magnificently solved? Not 
just patched over, not just a band-aid put on it, but resolved and restored and made new and made complete and better. What would that look like? This is an exercise in imagination. How good could it be? And then one final question. Is that dream God's dream? When you read the descriptions of our world recreated, of multitudes standing and singing together, is that dream God's dream? Let's pray together. God, thank you for the glimpses that you give us in your word of what humanity can be, what we were created to be, what we are called to be, and what you promise we one day will be. May we draw on those resources, those promises, those hopes to work in our world, to work in our lives, in our places of influence, in our communities, to make our world different, to make our world better. May we particularly have an eye towards those who are most hurt, most vulnerable, most in need of the world to be changed. And then may we be people who can imaginatively, creatively, enthusiastically, energetically, and in the name of Jesus, seek to make those changes. Bless us in each of our lives. Bless us as a church community. And bless us as we seek to do that in our lives, in our places this week. In your name we pray. Amen. We're really grateful for Nathan Brown for sharing this with us. Um, and if you would like to talk more about this um, or have questions, um, feel free to, you can contact Nathan Brown or you can contact us and we can um, engage together in dialogue. You know, it's NADOC week this week and um, I hope you've had a chance to celebrate um, the lives and contributions of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities uh, here in Australia. And I think we've got a lot to do in terms of um, bringing about the idea of creation that Nathan was talking about, the idea that when God created humanity, we were all created in the image of God, men and women of all different kinds, um, cultures, multitudes, right? Nations, we all belong to God. We're all children of God equally together. And so um, I do hope and pray that as we look at what God's original design was, as well as what God's um, ultimate design is, that we'll recognize that there is incredible work to be done here and now as we work towards that um, ultimate end together um, to do, to bring about and embrace all of humanity together.